You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. today's talk. I'm Scott Riagas, the director of the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies, and I'm happy to uh, welcome our speaker today, Will Pomerantz, of the Kennedy Institute uh, at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. Uh, Will Pomerantz has a long and varied history uh, dealing with Russian law, politics, and economics. He has four academic degrees, a BA, a master's um, from the University of Edinburgh, a JD from American University, and a PhD in Russian history. He's also had a wide variety of uh, career experiences, including practicing international law in the US and Russia. He was also program officer in Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus, for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus, at the National Endowment for Democracy. And then he joined the Kennedy Institute, where he has been the de deputy director and also the head of the rule of law program. Uh, he also uh, keeps up um, with research and writing and has published in a variety of journals on topics of law, politics, and economics. And today, his topic uh, will be Russia, Ukraine, and the effects of economic sanctions. Uh, he's going to speak for about a half hour, we'll take some questions, and then at uh, 3 o'clock, you're invited to stay here and move to the other room where we can, um, we can speak informally with um, Will, uh, and there will be coffee and perhaps something sweet. <laughs> now I'm looking forward to uh, Well, th thanks, thanks so, so much, Scott. And it's, it's, it is, it's a great pleasure to be here. And uh, what I'm going to do uh, this afternoon is talk about Russia and Ukraine separately, but linking them on the question of sanctions, their impact domestically, and where sanctions might be going uh, over the next six to 12 months. So I'm going to start with talking about internal developments within Russia, uh, talk about sanctions, and then talk about internal developments inside Ukraine, and how Ukraine views those sanctions as well. So the issue in terms of Russia today, and, that is, and, and, and where it's going, is that its politics is very much separated from its economics. Because if you look at the politics inside Russia today, uh, you really don't see a lot of activity or genuine opposition. And this is really one of the great triumphs of Putin and Putin's system, that he has managed to marginalize all the political opposition, and he has refused to make the same mistakes as his predecessors have done. Uh, most notably, uh, when Mikhail Gorbachev was presiding over the Soviet Union, uh, he allowed someone like Boris Yeltsin to emerge and become politically viable. Uh, Putin has made sure that that does not happen. And most of the political opponents of Vladimir Putin's regime have either gone abroad or they have found themselves uh, under indictment, quite frankly. Um, so Putin has been able to marginalize the opposition and he's also made sure that no intermediary institutions really exist that can challenge his rule or have some element of checks and balances. The Duma, for example, the, the legislature is not responsible for generating legislation most of the legislative initiatives come from the president's office, not inside the Duma. Uh, there 
there have been regional elections, but Putin has made sure that essentially no opposition party uh, gains control of the local legislatures. Uh, there is no free press. There is no independent judiciary. Instead, what Putin has introduced is something called the power vertical. Now, the notion of the power vertical uh, and Putin's political arrangement, uh, I think, is often misunderstood. Uh, the assumption is that it's a very top-down system uh, and that the bottom and is, uh, is simply responding to orders from the top and is reporting upwards. Um, I think the power vertical, as it has emerged, is a much more flexible political system in the sense that Putin only calls on the power of vertical when he really needs a response. So that when he wants, uh, for example, to go after someone like uh, an oligarch like Khodorkovsky or other oligarchs who have been imprisoned, he can call on the power of vertical and it will deliver the decisions that he wants. Um, but in the process of creating the power of vertical, uh, he's also given tremendous leeway to local initiative and local authorities. And he doesn't really micromanage these authorities. Uh, they are their own profit engines, as it were. And what's emerged is a top-down system that allows for various maneuverability in the middle and the bottom. And that is really one of the primary sources of corruption in, in Russia. So from this perspective today, um, I don't think there really is a political challenger to Vladimir Putin. Um, there have been various consistent pleas by former ministers, such as the former finance minister, Alexei Kudrin, to introduce general structural reforms uh, to make the country's uh, economic system more favorable for small and medium-sized enterprises, to change how the bureaucracy is managed. Um, but in fact, these structural reforms uh, have not been implemented. And Putin essentially uh, brings them out now and again, but he really hasn't acted upon them at all. So if you look at politics inside Russia today, I think the problem is that it really doesn't have politics, that there are no intermediary institutions. Uh, the problem with this political system is that it is facing sufficient economic problems, and they have been significantly exacerbated uh, by sanctions and the collapse in the price of oil. So what ails the Russian economy? Uh, well, really, if you take a look at it closely, uh, you, you can you can take your pick. Um, if you, for example, uh, one of the things that Vladimir Putin has made sure is that, in, that pensions uh, keep pace with inflation. That's been one of the key parts of his economic program, and that is how he has made sure to uh, keep one of his crucial political bases, uh, the pensioners, uh, su supporting his regime. Uh, in the 2016 budget that was just announced yesterday, uh, it appears now that for the first time, pensions will no longer be indexed to inflation, and that pensions will only increase by 4%, with inflation increasing by 12%. Throw in the decline, the dramatic decline, in the price of in the ruble, and you see that pensioners in Russia will have significant problems going forward. And since this is one of his primary sources of support, this could easily pro cause problems. Another source of problem for Putin is in the regions. Uh, the regional governments are broke. Uh, and in fact, it's been reported that essentially up to 20 of the 86 regions are technically in default. Uh, the regions have been assigned significant economic responsibility over the last three, four years uh, to provide a lot of the social services in, in, the, in the areas that they manage. Um, they will no longer be able to pay for those going forward, most likely. And once again, the federal government will be forced to pick up the tab for them. Um, 
There are a host of other problems as well. Uh, utility rates are about to increase dramatically in Russia. Um, since Putin is always looking over his shoulder for color, colored revolutions and so forth, um, he obviously knows that recent protests in Armenia were sparked by the rise in utility rates. And the list goes on. Car manufacturing is down significantly. Retail sales are, are, are significantly down as well. There's been the collapse of the ruble, uh, which has decreased by half over the last year. Um, there is at least a 3%, there's been at least a 3% decrease in the GDP in 2015. And it is anticipated, in fact, that it's going to be greater than that once the final numbers are in. Uh, if you look at outsiders and how they interact with Russia, again, the news is very gloomy. Uh, Deutsche Bank has just announced that it is closing its Moscow office and running the remaining of its Russia business abroad. Uh, this is indeed a, a shocking development uh, since Deutsche Bank has been one of the primary investors in Russia and Russia has been such a good market for the German investment community. Uh, in terms of foreign investment, uh, according to recent surveys, at least in 2015, Russia ranks just behind Bosnia in terms of attracting foreign investment. Uh, throw in the fact that its allies, uh, such as Belarus, have, are asking for money as well. Uh, Belarus just asked for a $3 billion loan to tide it over during difficult times. And you can see the fundamental economic weaknesses within Russia and the problems it faces as it has engaged in various sorts of activities abroad over the last year and a half to two years. Um, so the question is, and this focuses on, on the nature of, of this talk, is, is this the result of sanctions? Um, is this economic collapse um, the result of the decision by the EU and the United States and other countries to close off capital markets, to decrease funding and make uh, uh, and embargo various technologies to Russia, um, have sanctions push Russia over the edge of, uh, over, as it were, and cause this economic decline. Now there have been a variety of different sanctions that have been introduced in Russia over the last year and a half after developments in Ukraine. The first two rounds of US sanctions and European sanctions were primarily directed towards individuals and specific companies. Um, and in many ways, the Russians uh, pretty much dismissed those as being irrelevant, that they didn't deter Russia in its activities in Ukraine, and uh, the politicians that were named in the sanctions uh, were pretty dismissive of them as well, since most of them didn't plan to travel to the United States anyway. Um, it was really after the downing of the Malaysian airliner in July of 2014 that changed the nature of the sanctions that specific sectors of the Russian economy were targeted. Uh, the sectors were primarily in energy, particularly deep water and Arctic oil exploration, and in the financial sector, uh, where essentially Russia was closed off from the financial markets in the West. Um, and I think uh, when you look at the impact of these sanctions, uh, they have had a significant impact on the Russian economy. Why is that? Well, to begin with, a lot of Russian companies faced major, had major uh, corporate borrowings from Western banks, and they now have to pay them back. Since these companies are often state companies, it will be up to the Russian government, therefore, to have to pay off these hard currency loans that they have received. More importantly, I think, what the sanctions have done is that they have created risk and, un and uncertainty. And if you ask any businessman what they fear the most, uh, it will be risk and uncertainty.
Um, and that has been an important factor in driving down Russian in, in, in foreign investment in Russia. Um, the third thing is that the goalposts always keep changing with these sanctions. Again, fueling the sense of instability. Uh, the United States, for example, just introduced uh, a month ago a new round of sanctions where they specifically targeted an oil field in Russia. And that made things very, very complicated for Western investors. It wasn't a deep water Arctic port. It was a different, simply an oil field. And again, if, for the oil companies that are continuing to work with Russian companies, the realization that in fact an entire field can be sanctioned was very disconcerting indeed. The other impact of the sanctions that I think is important to note is that they have resulted in a response from Vladimir Putin and, and Russia. And if you look at the counter sanctions that have been introduced, Russia's attempt to counter uh, US and European efforts, um, it has compelled Putin to make mistakes. And I think they've been very important mistakes that have consequences going forward for the Russian economy. What have they been? Well, the most obvious ones are the counter sanctions that Russia imposed on agricultural products coming from the EU and the United States. That they imposed sanctions on the import of, of wheat, of, of all, all, basically all agricultural products, fruits, vegetables, and so forth. Um, but of course, Russia didn't necessarily have the means to replace that. Um, and so therefore, uh, you have a, a decision to close off the imports, but a need to rely on Russian goods that either A, are not there, or B, are more expensive to produce. And as a result, that's contributed to the high rates of inflation inside Russia. It's also compelled Russia to introduce this policy called import substitution. Uh, import substitution uh, basically is instead of buying technology or goods or services from the West, Russia is going to produce them themselves. Um, and this is part of the underlying uh, motivations for the agricultural sanctions. But it also has led to the announcement that Russia is going to start producing laptops, cell phones, and other electronic goods and so forth. Uh, quite frankly, Russia just doesn't have the technology, the resources to do this themselves. Uh, there's a reason why the United States also doesn't produce these things at the same time. But it's quite clear that a policy of self-sufficiency as opposed to comparative advantage, and the reason for Russia joining the WTO, the World Trade Organization, was to take advantage of comparative advantages that Russia might have. Uh, Russia now has abandoned that policy and returned to a more Soviet-style notion of self-sufficiency. And I think that has a very profound impact on Russia's economic development. So I think sanctions, you can say by themselves, have impacted where the Russian economy is going. But even, even if you don't buy that argument, uh, I think there's no doubt that sanctions, plus the dramatic collapse of the price of oil, have definitely had an impact on the Russian economy. So sanctions by themselves, there's reason to debate, do they work or do they not work? Uh, sanctions plus a collapse in the energy market has definitely worked in terms of impact on the Russian economy. So as a result, Russia is rapidly going through its hard currency reserves. At the beginning of this crisis, Russia had anywhere from 550 billion to 600 billion dollars in hard currency reserves um, that, it could that it could use to address the problem and try to tide it over. And if you look at the 2008-2009 crisis, that's what Russia did. Russia had, again, significant hard currency reserves at that time. 
They spent them very dramatically. They intervened particularly in the currency markets to defend the value of the ruble. And you had a, a V-shaped recovery, a very quick recovery in the value of the ruble and the value of the price of energy. And, and that strategy seemed to work in 2008. Um, Russia, I think, tried a similar strategy this time around, but it was a very different circumstance. And uh, they spent upwards of $80 billion defending the ruble uh, until last year at the end of the year, it announced that it was no longer going to spend any hard currency to defend the ruble. And the ruble has gone from 30 to $60, um, 40 rubles to $60, to 60, 60 rubles to a dollar. Um, so, the result of this economic crisis that has been fueled by sanctions, a drop in the, a collapse in foreign investment, and, and the drop in, in, in oil prices, is that it's forced Russia to spend this money. And Russia has now gone, its capital, its foreign hard currency reserves are now at approximately $350 billion. Uh, approximately $50 billion will be spent to ca cancel the deficit anticipated in 2015. Uh, the new budget was announced uh, yesterday for 2016 and approximately a similar amount of money might have to be spent in 2016 as well because they anticipate a 3% budget deficit again. So you have tremendous pressure on the Russian economy and that's not going to go away anytime soon as long as sanctions remain in place. As long as Russia doesn't have access to Western markets and as long as the price of oil doesn't suddenly change and go back up. So Russia is facing serious financial restraints um, and it is doing so at a time when it has decided that it's, it's necessary to fight not one war but two wars uh, in Syria now and in Ukraine. So what you see in Russia is certain political choices being made um, and the question is, does Russia really have the economic resources in which to maintain this struggle for a long period of time? When would the financial constraints uh, that have already begun to manifest itself begin to bubble over into social unrest and potentially even political unrest? That's something that has to be factored in by Vladimir Putin as well. So that's really kind of how I see Russia and the role of sanctions at, at the current time. Um, and I think that the clock is ticking for Vladimir Putin. Uh, he needs to have certain results before the economic crisis begins to worsen and he is forced to make certain economic choices as, as events play, play forward. What about Ukraine? Um, the clock is ticking in Ukraine as well. Um, and if one wants to, one can paint a rather gloomy picture about what is going on in Ukraine since the Maidan. Uh, again, Russia has inflation, Ukraine's inflation is worse. Uh, Russia faces collapsing production, uh, Ukraine's production has been worse. Fallen corruption has been worse. worse. Um, Russia faces corruption, uh, according to surveys, Ukrainian corruption is even worse. Um, throw in invasion, annexation, and an ongoing military engagement, and one can see why Ukraine faces certain fundamental obstacles uh, going forward as well. So why, why, why optimism for Ukraine? What, does, do you, what, what are the opportunities that Ukraine has going forward that uh, may be overlooked? And I should say I was just in Ukraine about three weeks ago, 
and I was able to go to various conferences and talk to Ukrainians who are engaged in this question. And what's interesting is, 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 is that Ukraine has what Russia doesn't have, and that is politics. And that is where Ukraine has an advantage and where one can see that things might change. Um, it has held presidential and parliamentary elections in a time of war, which is no small accomplishment. Um, and since President Poroshenko has come to office, there have been a series of reforms, uh, halting reforms. Uh, some have been not as quickly implemented as others, but nevertheless, a series of reforms that have begun to change Ukraine. Uh, most notably, you can find them in the energy sector, where Ukrainians now have to pay a higher price for energy, but they're trying to, to eliminate the corruption that has been pervasive throughout the energy market. Uh, Ukraine has been able to reconst reconstructure uh, its foreign debt so that it's essentially received a 20% uh, discount on that debt, which has improved its, um, its, its financial uh, circumstances. Um, it has been able to grow its uh, hard currency reserves to up towards the $12 billion when essentially Yanukovych took everything in a suitcase when he left and fled Ukraine, which is, again, no small accomplishment in, in a year and a half to actually begin to rebuild uh, the hard currency reserves. Um, there have been examples of decreasing the bureaucracy. Um, it has simplified the tax regime, tried to decrease the regulatory pressure on business, uh, created anti-corruption bureaus, um, and has begun to bring a new generation of people into office. Uh, these are well-educated, successful people who have been engaged in business, who, for the most part, never really wanted to participate in politics, uh, don't bring a, a lot of the political baggage, baggage that has existed in Ukraine for all these years, but they have arrived and they have decided that it is necessary to engage in politics. And uh, having heard some of them, one could not be impressed by their efforts to begin to change. Uh, they may have started as idealists, but I think after six months in office, there's, there's a healthy dose of realism as well and they are beginning to change Ukraine. The problem for Ukraine is that it is not changing fast enough. And there are, if, if you read the press, if you talk to various politicians, the common refrain is this government, the Yatsenyuk government and President Poroshenko are simply not moving fast enough, particularly in terms of fighting corruption. That the bureaucracy remains largely unreformed uh, and there are still strong sectors of the bureaucracy that are highly corrupt and essentially no one has been, no one has found themselves under indictment. Uh, there is a strong desire I think in Ukrainian society and, in, and in within civil society and the activists who led the Maidan that they want to see ministers in the dock, they want to see people tried for corruption and they want to see people in jail for corruption. Uh, they also don't want to deal with evolutionary reforms in the bureaucracy and the judiciary, they just want to fire everybody. Fire everybody and we'll see what happens next. So there is this genuine um, feeling of, of, of people losing faith in the government, of wanting it to move faster, and a desire for, for quicker change. So when you look at Ukraine, Ukraine remains a high wire act um, with no real economic safety net. Uh, the IMF has come in, but in terms of the United States and the EU, uh, we really haven't given significant amounts of money uh, in order to change the, the balance of forces on the ground. 
Um, there are also clear political rivalries in Ukraine that are longstanding that haven't been resolved as well, even after Maidan. Uh, throw in various independent militias that wander around the country. And you have some real sources of instability inside Ukraine. It's, not, it's, it's by no means a sure thing that Ukraine is on the right path or that's, that it will ultimately succeed. There are plenty of factors that allow it to, to go in different directions. Um, so why then did I walk away from my recent trip slightly optimistic? I'll put it like cautiously optimistic would be the uh, best way to describe it. Um, one, it has a reformist government and it also have a, has a civil society that says it's not going fast enough. And so you have a general balance of forces that if their luck holds out can lead to a positive political scenario. You have civil society which remains very strong and very independent which is insisting that reforms go faster. So you have a chance for genuine reform uh, as these factors work within Ukrainian society. The second reason why I'm optimistic, because even when I talk to the pessimists, and there were plenty about, uh, you scratch the short term, you, you talk to them, and you find out that they may be short term pessimists, but they're all long term optimists. So they all actually believe that somehow something is changing and that things can get better. Um, the third reason why one can be optimistic is, at least as Ukraine exists now in the, Minsk, in the Minsk II world, where Donbass and Luhansk is not a part of Ukraine, and where Crimea is now a part of Russia, uh, you have a much more unified and homogeneous Ukraine itself. Uh, it is less divisive, although in, in terms of where they believe Ukraine is going. Um, and, and so you actually have a different political system. And this is where I think Vladimir Putin clearly miscalculated when he decided to annex Crimea. Because it was one thing to have a domestic victory in Crimea, but what he also did was he took away a million voters for the party of regions, uh, the more Russian nationalist supporters. And once he took away a million votes, he changed the balance of power within Ukraine forever. And he can't put that back together again. And as a result, the previous kind of 50-50 east-west split is not there anymore. And that will change Ukrainian politics going forward. Um, the final reason for optimism is, as a, one colleague of mine described the Maidan and the revolution of dig dignity, he described it as a bourgeois revolution. That it's not a nationalist revolution, it's not a social revolution, uh, it is a desire to live in a normal country. And as long as that remains the refrain that comes out of Maidan, the push for a more normal, well-regulated, non-corrupt society, that is an important accomplishment that makes the Maidan distinct from 1991 and even from uh, the, the first Maidan revolution uh, in, in the early 2000s. Um, so where are we now? I think Syria is an important game changer in this whole relationship. Uh, I think one of the problems confronting Russia is that it's going to be very difficult to fight two wars at the same time. Um, and there is a hint, at least, that from a military standpoint, Russia wants to see the Minsk II ceasefire actually implemented. There has been at least some initial talks of heavy artillery being moved back. The fighting has decreased over the last month or so. Um, there is a possibility that Syria might begin the process not end the process, begin a process of de-escalation in eastern Ukraine. But another key factor as this crisis faces a new turning point 
um, and maybe even the beginning of the beginning of the end, is what to do about sanctions. Because sanctions are very important for Ukraine as well. Um, and the issue is, sanctions were introduced and have been extended in order to implement the Minsk II ceasefire. And if indeed the ceasefire is implemented, or even if an appearance of an implementation, then there is a possibility that the EU will decide that the sanctions are no longer necessary. And that is a crucial variable going forward because unlike the United States, when we introduce sanctions, we leave them on forever. And we decide maybe after 50 years that they're not working. Um, but but we, we, we don't, we don't re-examine them. Um, and we, we wait to see if, you know, at some point, maybe after 30 years, you can get a deal. But we're not very quick to withdraw our sanctions. Uh, the EU sanctions on Russia last for six months. And they have to be renewed every six months. And it requires unanimity to renew them. So over the last year already, there have been voices in Hungary, in Slovakia, uh, in Italy, in France, that have at various times said there's no reason why we need to continue these sanctions or we need to change the sanctions. Um, and there is a possibility. The sanctions are now in place. The EU sanctions are in place till January 2016. So if there is a, 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 an appearance that the crisis in Ukraine is dying down, uh, there will be increased voices in Europe to end the sanctions or withdraw the sanctions. And it just takes one country to decide not to extend the sanctions for the EU sanctions to end. So there is a very risky scenario as, as we contemplate over the next three to four months. Um, that the EU decides not to extend the sanctions and the United States decides to keep them in place. Um, if that were to occur, uh, then Vladimir Putin and Russia would have achieved a significant strategic victory uh, because he would have divided or managed to divide the US and EU at a crucial time um, regarding the sanctions. So there is now this new risk going forward if Russia can't fight two wars and wants to de-escalate in Ukraine, that the sanctions might come off. And how they come off will be very important in, how this, in, in, our, in our policy going forward. Um, there's also the risk that in order to address the crisis in Syria and to perceive uh, uh, influx and, and, the, and the, the influx of refugees from Syria, that somehow the EU decides to trade Syria uh, for Ukraine, as it were, that Syria says if we, we'll actually want to work with, the EU decides that it wants to work with Russia to stem the flow of refugees, and in return the EU decides to remove sanctions or change sanctions on, on Syria, on, 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 on Russia. Um, I think that is a less likely scenario. Uh, clearly President Obama, when he made a speech at the UN, was quite clear that he's not about to trade uh, U.S. sanctions on Russia for uh, increased cooperation in Syria. Uh, he's at least decoupled them. So we'll have to wait and see whether that is a factor. The final issue about ending sanctions is if the EU were to end its sanctions unilaterally, uh, I assume it would want something in return from Russia in terms of ending its counter sanctions. But for Putin to end his counter sanctions, his, protections, his, his protectionist policy, he would again have to open up Russia to international uh, competition. And it's, a, it's, it's, it's highly uncertain 
whether that is a winning strategy for Putin, having convinced uh, his domestic constituency that he was going to protect them, that in order to um, respond to an end of sanctions from the EU, he decides to roll back the sanctions on, on, on agricultural products and open Russian markets up again. That's something that Putin in many ways wants to avoid. And the sanctions issue complicates the matter significantly. The timing of, of the ending of sanctions will make it very difficult for that. So I think, just to round things up, I think both Putin and Poroshenko, uh, Russia and Ukraine, are playing for time. Uh, Putin needs time to somehow extricate himself from Ukraine. Um, his victory or his, his greatest triumph would be to undermine the alliance within the EU or between the EU and the United States. Uh, but that won't happen for a while. So he needs to play for time for that. Uh, Poroshenko is also playing for time uh, because if he is somehow able to, to survive the challenge from Russia, uh, there is the possibility of Ukraine furthering its reforms and beginning to change the course of uh, the direction of the country and begin to try to make this what will be a very long transition from Eurasia to Europe. And with that, I'll end. So, um I got a 15-year-old. Not, not a lot of cocktail parties. <laughs> yes, exactly. exactly. Um, so from the U.S. perspective, uh, of course, it's unlikely that uh, sanctions will end anytime soon. Um, but let's say, hypothetically, Putin has an about-face, has a damaging conversion, and decides the only way he's going to survive uh, as his hard currency reserves decrease is to have some kind of major rapprochement with the West, and he wants to eliminate um, sanctions from the U.S. side. Are there, so in, in the relevant uh, parts of the U.S. national security uh, bureaucracy and the Treasury and state, uh, some idea about what it would take to eliminate sanctions against Russia? Would it require, um, would, would it simply be enough to disavow separatists in, in Donbass, or would they also have to withdraw from Crimea fully? which case, right, that's pretty much a non-starter. Um, and is anybody that you talk to thinking along these lines of potentially what might lead to uh, the end of sanctions? Um, there are people in the Treasury Department who think about this all the time. So it is something that is discussed. Um, since we haven't had many positive steps in that direction, it's not widely discussed. But clearly, for the sanctions, um, the sectoral sanctions that were introduced in the aftermath of the shooting down of the Malaysian airliner and the actions of Russia in eastern Ukraine, what is required to end those would be the full implementation of the Minsk II ceasefire. And that does not mean only the end of hostilities, but it means um, having local elections, from the Ukrainian perspective, having local elections in the Donbas and Luhansk under Ukrainian law and it means returning the Ukrainian border to Ukraine. Um, and that is still a very long way off. So the, 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 the phrase that was used was off-ramps. The off-ramps now from 
U.S. perspective in terms of ending the sanctions, the sectoral sanctions, is full Im implementation. Um, would Putin trade potentially The issue is that the United So Putin doesn't have that deal to negotiate. And there are certain sanctions that are, are specifically listed as the crime. They are in specific response in terms of banks in, in Crimea, uh, opportunities to trade in Crimea. I mean, there are sanctions that specifically rate to, relate to Crimea. And those will not come off, um, even, I think, if there is some sort of political arrangement that allows the eastern Ukraine to once again come under central Ukrainian control. So the Crimean sanctions um, most likely are there to last and will last for a long time. Um, and they will only change, uh, you know, in X number of years when the, when the people who aren't around who remember why they were introduced in the first place. <laughs> And you know, a, a president wants to be seen as you know, ambitious and, and open in terms of trying to forge new relations. Or perhaps when Putin is no longer around. Or perhaps when Putin is no longer around. That's exactly true. But even, even then, um, I think um, it, it will be very hard to lift the Crimean sanctions. Uh, one of the important things to remember is Ukraine actually has a very strong diaspora community in the United States and that that diaspora community will, not, will, will, will remember Crimea for a long time and what happened. And they are in a position to find, to exercise significant political, you know, raise issues, um, and it will make it that much harder to remove the sanctions. So the, the, the Crimean sanctions will stay designated within the listing of the Treasury sanctions as being specifically for Crimea in response to Crimea. No way, anytime, even if there's some sort of resolution to the Eastern Ukraine. I, I have a question about the relationship between the Russian There's, you know, there was no immediate explanation as to why they chose agriculture, but your arguments are, are, are very sensible. They didn't want to upset banking relations. They didn't want to upset you know, exploration efforts and energy and so forth. Um, so they chose agriculture, but agriculture was an important, the, agriculture is an important market for EU exporters. So it, it, it was something that hurt. And there's no doubt that European agriculture has been hurt. Uh, by losing access to the Russian market. It's hard to recreate you know, supply lines and so forth and find alternatives for it. Uh, the EU has had to pony up extra money to help farmers who are having trouble diversifying or finding new markets. Um, and even when Putin negotiated the WTO, agriculture was always one of the things that he wanted to. Um, and he has talked about that throughout his negotiations. 
Um, and so this created an opportunity, because it's a, a substantial constituency within his country, to help agriculture um, and to try to create, you know, shield them from competition that he had opened, opened that sector to because of Russia's entry to the WTO. So Putin was always very lukewarm to join the, the World Trade Organization. Um, and he, he, he admitted that there would be significant initial harm, economic harm, for Russia's entry into the WTO. So I think when he looked at the various sectors that could be protected, that would, would benefit from protection, he chose agriculture. Um, and he also, I think, did so in the belief that if you know, Russian agriculture, which has been a, a relatively successful part of the Russian economy, could grow that much faster if it was provided extra protection. One of the, th but, but so I think that was at best his, his, his mindset. Um, what's interesting is that the whole point, one of the reasons why Russia, why the crisis began is Russia's objection to the association agreement, the free trade agreement with Europe, and the fear that European goods would enter duty-free via Ukraine. This is his financial and economic argument as to why the, the, customs un the, 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 the association agreement was a bad deal for Russia. So he introduced this, and he introduced a bargain on Ukraine from allowing European goods uh, only to watch European goods flood in via Belarus, and, they came in and, they, and then they came in duty-free. So that Belarus became the great producer of fish products, you know? Not a, a landlocked country, but remarkably producing remarkable number of salmon and other fine fish um, to import. And so what Putin did is not only did he undermine his existing trade with Ukraine, but he undermined this whole Eurasian economic union that was the whole point of this crisis. The whole point of the crisis was Ukraine was supposed to join the e Eurasian economic union. Um, Ukraine after Maidan will never join it. Um, and his two pillars within the Eurasian Economic Union, um, Belarus and Kazakhstan, never introduced the same trade restrictions that Russia did, thereby creating two giant holes to the Eurasian Economic Union and undermining its specific purpose to begin with. So the, 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 the trade element is, is critical to understanding the whole evolution of this crisis. And again, it's, it's why Putin's counter moves have so often backfired against him. You know, the idea was to isolate Ukraine, economically at least, and he wasn't even able to do that within, within his own new, newly created unified economic space. Yes, Chris. Uh, comment, question. Uh, uh, I've been told that uh, Putin has a lot of respect for Yegor Gaidar. Economist and the Prime Minister for uh, uh, Yeltsin. Really not nice. Anyway, uh, Gaidar wrote this book in which he said that the problem that bankrupted the Soviet Union was that it was using its oil revenues to pay for food. I'll just throw that out there as a as a uh, as a, con a comment. But th then here's the question: I have read stuff that said that uh, Saddam Hussein was able to use sanctions to establish a ration regime inside Iraq, which increased his political leverage. 
with the, with the counter sanctions on agriculture. Sanctions are tricky. Sanctions can always backfire on you. <coughs> and what often happens when you introduce sanctions is it creates people rally around the flag. You know, it, it creates more internal unity than you might have had before sanctions. Sanctions can be counterproductive. That's why it has to be so careful. You have to be so careful when and how they're introduced. Um, Russians have, you know, rallied around the flag. Um, they continue to have a high level of popularity for Putin and his policies. Um, so sanctions can have an unintended consequences. Um, and so far, Putin hasn't had to introduce any rations, uh, rationing system. Um, that hasn't occurred yet. But um, at the same time, it's quite clear that for a, a significant part of the Russian population, uh, a much higher percentage of their income now just goes to maintaining food and basic living. They have no expendable income, essentially, they just for the basics, food for money for the basics. So sanctions, they are leverage that can be used domestically. In Cuba, for, for, for decades, Cuba sanctions were used to rally the Cuban people and were relatively successful. Um, we need to wait and see whether that lasts in Russia. Um, it's, 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 it's unclear. I mean, at when does Russia reach a tipping point? It's very, un, you know, no, no one knows yet. Uh, one assumes that when it at least happens, most likely, when Russia runs out of money. Um, and Russia still has some money, and so Russia still has time to see, to play out this crisis. Um, so I think that's kind of the question, dealing with the leverage and, 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 the, and the issue about sanctions. Um, uh, as for Gaidar, um, uh, he may have respect for Mr. Gaidar, but um, he certainly doesn't have uh, a great deal of time for all the economists who followed Mr. Gaidar, including his former finance minister, Alexei Kutrin, who have uh, advocated very strongly for introducing structural reforms, and that as if no structural reforms are introduced, Russia economy will continue to fall behind, uh, that its best case scenario is a stagnant economy, and a stagnant economy in a global economy is not competitive. Um, the last thing I'll say about Gaidar is uh, Gaidar's daughter just moved to Ukraine. <laughs> moved to Ukraine and became, I think, a, 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 she was a, she's, a, she's a regional government official, I think. I think in Odessa, actually. Yeah, she's, 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 she's what? Okay, uh, okay, go ahead. We'll come to you next. With him and then, then okay. No problem. I actually, I'm like, my name is Zorist, I'm actually Ukrainian, from Ukrainian, Ukraine studying law here in Udav. And my question is related to moving Maria Gerdau to Ukraine. Like, key reform drivers in Ukraine are not Ukrainians. These are, are uh, so our government officials are Ministry of Economics is from Lithuania. Yes. Prosecutor from Georgia. Uh, Minister of Finance is ex-Ukrainian from USA. And like for me, it looks like experiments. I mean, like in governance and general. Like, what is your thoughts about it? And I think it's like successful experiments. It's they're like this, they, these people are two points like of leverage of so, uh, civil society, like to move to the It's 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 a very brave a very brave political move, I think, um, in 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 effort really to perceived as being people from outside the system and highly qualified people into the system. 
Um, obviously, it's something that we would never really contemplate in the United States, kind of having um, the former president of whatever come and be the governor of, uh, of Virginia or something like that. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a unique um, political move. Um, for the most part, it's worked. I think especially uh, the, the finance minister has, she's done a, you know, has, has broad political support. And, and has been very eloquent and direct in explaining what she's doing and trying to explain it to the Ukrainian people. Um, the issue really is, the, it also brings an element of instability uh, and no doubt that the appointment of former President Saakashvili to be the governor of Odessa is either an inspired move or uh, one that is fraught with danger. Um, because it turns out that uh, Mr. Saakashvili isn't really even satisfied with being governor of Odessa but wants to be prime minister of Ukraine. And um, that's, that's, that's a, a very, it's, it's, it's one thing to, do, to be president of, uh, prime minister of one country, but it's not, not everyone who gets to be president and prime, prime minister of two countries. Um, so, and, and he's been very critical of the Yatsenu government and has basically said that they're not doing enough in order to root out corruption. And um, there are plenty of people who have questions about his motives and where, what, what his ultimate intentions are. Um, and so it's, it's, um, it just opens up lots of questions as to how reform is being pursued and to what extent can you rely on foreign advice and to what extent do you import foreigners to implement that advice. And Ukraine, will, 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 the, the verdict is still out in terms of how that experiment will work. Over here. Well, Putin's great success is his ability to balance these different factions. And you can identify them, whether they be oligarchs, security services, Ministry of Internal Affairs, legal system, and so forth. There are clear different factions. Um, each one that is, can challenge Putin and each one that he tries to keep in line with the general, the general um, political situation. So, I mean, I don't see at the present time any political faction within Russia being in a position to challenge Putin directly. I don't see, I don't see yet the palace coup scenario of, of the oligarch saying, gee whiz, you know, if we follow Putin down, we're going to lose everything. We have to be rid of Putin. And the reason why I, I, I'm, I think that's a, a less likely scenario is that because they are also indebted to Putin. Um, the other issue as to why I think Putin still is able to stay at the center of all these factions is that it, if Putin were to disappear, the, it, the most likely scenario is these, action, these factions go to war with each other. Yeah, 
that, and, and that happened in 2008. When Putin announced that he was not going to be president and that Medvedev was going to be president, it was three or four days, or it might have been a, a week or so, I, don't, I can't remember, before Putin said he was going to be prime minister. And already, once it was clear that Medvedev was going to be president, the different security services began arresting each other. And it was quite clear that they, 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 they would be at each other's throats in very short order. And when Putin announced that he was going to be prime minister, that disappeared. And so Putin still remains the essential balancing force within these different factions. Um, I don't anticipate a smooth succession if Putin were to, find, were to suddenly disappear from the scene. Um, because essentially it's a once every generational opportunity to be head of the Russian Federation. And there are plenty of ambitious people who believe they, that, that they should be the lucky one. And I don't anticipate them shying away from trying to get to the top. Um, and so um, I don't see a smooth transition. Um, I would say that it's highly unlikely if Putin were to disappear tomorrow that Medvedev, as prime minister, who would be the person who became president, I don't think he has the political clout to actually keep this whole thing floating. And, and, and so I would think he would find himself very quickly under assault from very different, different factions within, within Putin's circle. Okay, well, we'll go here and then there. Okay, right here. I think Putin's, I think Putin's inner circle has tremendous influence, and I think it's a very small inner circle. And it, and it, it's been reported that there were no more than five to ten people in the room, for example, when he made the decision to annex Crimea, and there were no economists in the room, and there were probably no one from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs either. So it's a very narrow circle that I think focuses on the security services um, and the people he trusts the most. So I don't think. Um, it's a wide consultation of people that influences Putin when he makes these decisions. My uh, question relates to your economic analysis of Russia. Mm -hmm. um, specifically, the confidence of the analysis. Uh, I assume you have experts that put this stuff together for you that do the analysis. Um, the reason I, I call this question, well, is the fact that, for example, Credit Suisse they just issued a report on their panic index. And they're saying our financial system is in a panic state. Uh, they've named previous panics in the past, like old age, 2008, 1987. Um, Larry Summers wrote a bunch of uh, articles in the Washington Post, Bloomberg. Uh, he's saying we need more money printing, more quantitative easing, all the nations have to pony up again. This is sounding very familiar. Um, J.P. Morgan Chase put out a report saying the only reason unemployment went down uh, is that it's entirely attributable to the fact that more people are not counted in the workforce. And they're saying about 95 million people who are of employable age are not counted in the workforce. So I'm just going through all this because it appears that we're headed for another uh, financial crash. Um, and it seems like all we've done from 2008 is kind of patched it up. So I say this because I call into question the competency of the you know, standard way of thinking of economics here. And if it is an incompetent analysis, number one, would then that trump um, a lot of the presentations of 
possibility that the United States will crash before Russia? Well, um, I, I, I'm, I'm a trade lawyer to begin with, so I'm, 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 I, I've, the, the, for the economic analysis, um, th there's, you know, how, how reliable are the figures on Russia is essentially what you're saying. And what I think is interesting about the figures in Russia is that all the figures come from a small part, but a still independent part or relatively objective part of the Russian press. So I read Vietnamese, which is the major business paper in Russia, along with Commerçant, um, and other news sources that focus on business analysis. And what's interesting is where I, there's really not, I don't really read or, or, or pay as close attention to the political analysis, because a lot of it has is, is, is become more jingoistic, especially in newspapers, even like Commerçant, which is perceived as a quality newspaper. But the fascinating thing is that the economic analysis is all pretty factual based and it's based on numbers. And no one really questions the numbers. And the numbers are all bad. And they appear in the Russian press all the time. So that I think you can, you can count on the objectivity or, or the real numbers, at least in terms of how the Russians are reporting their uh, economy. And there's plenty of reasons to argue that it's probably much worse than is reported in the Russian press. For example, um, no one knows what's on the balance sheets of Russian banks, but you can virtually guarantee that none of it's getting paid back, or a huge amount is not, that their situation is much worse than is in fact reported in the press or is reported in their financial reports. So, you know, I think you can make an argument that there may be, it, it could be worse than what they're saying, but the Russian press reported today that essentially by the end of 2016 budget, based on their projections, they're gonna work their way through the reserve fund. And that's a pretty bleak assessment of where the Russian economy is going. And it's, 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 it's reported in the Russian press. And, and, and you know, the media has, has emphasized you know, victory, you know, the actions in Syria and military action in Ukraine. Uh, hasn't really focused on the economic crisis, but you ask Russians what concerned them the most and they'll all say inflation, or they'll say something about their economic future. The polls are consistent about that in Russia over the last six months, that they're, they're particularly less interested in Ukraine and more concerned about where their own domestic economy is going. So I think you can, you, you can question the veracity of all these figures um, and where the Russian is, uh, economy is going. I would just argue that, in fact, the Russians have been much more objective about their economic future than anything else uh, in, in their discussion of politics. Mm -hmm. We'll come back to that. Mm -hmm. uh, if um, Russia economically, militarily, actually starts bleeding too bad, um, I have a question about whether he has any outs from external sources. For example, I noticed that the uh, St. Peter's Economic Forum and the uh, UFA uh, Summit and uh, or the SCO and the BRICS and, and the United Nations speech, he's making an awful lot of boasts about how useful these organizations are to him. Mm -hmm. Is there any sign that any of them will provide oh. any relief if uh, the vision gets too bad? I'm, I'm afraid. I'm, I'm, I'm not a, an economic advisor, but the emerging markets are not doing so well, generally speaking. And the idea that somehow Brazil or 
most specifically China is going to come rallying and save the Russian economy uh, is highly unlikely. Uh, and that's especially true for China. Uh, I think Putin's assumption when this crisis began was that somehow he could pivot to Asia just like we pivot to Asia. And that China could provide the, the, the source of finance to tide him over when Western markets were closed off. And it just hasn't happened. And even his big deals with China, for example, the big pipeline deal that he announced in May 2014, building this $400 billion pipeline, um, he, he never disclosed what the price of the gas was going to be. And if you don't disclose the price, then it, who knows what it's really worth. And there's all, there were already cost overruns, you know, questions about its economic viability. Will it be built? And what actually will it achieve? So I think Putin at times thought that, that China was going to be his banker of last resort. Um, and before the stock market crash in China, um, there was reason to think that that might be possible. But I think there's been, speaking of economic news and what is true and what is not true, I think we've learned that the Chinese economy uh, is not what we thought it was. Um, and that it has its own domestic concerns, which makes it less likely to come and bail out Vladimir Putin. And I don't think Putin has gotten the economic reinsurances that he expected and wanted by moving within the BRICS and trying to create that as some sort of alternative organization. Um, emerging markets, developing economies are all significantly hurt. And if the US starts raising interest rates, uh, things aren't going to get better for a long time. I'm just curious if you have ideas of either those in the US or the transatlantic system at large that, that do have contingency plans you know, concerning the virtually imminent collapse of, of Wall Street in London uh, with the $1.4 quadrillion derivatives bubble and so forth. But it, it seems that the confidence in that system is what gives people the hubris to say that what Growth policy of China is doing, the Asian Economic Union, the BRICS concept is all, you know, that building infrastructure and the emphasis on manufacturing and so forth, but that somehow doesn't work. It's sort of like the people that went after FDR and said, you know, it, it, it doesn't work when the nation was actually built on these types of policies. Um, but it, it just seems to me that the erosion of the, the confidence in that system. Um, in light of the, the derivatives blowout, the fact that this TPP, which is really a kind of economic warfare against the BRICS, as the TTIP is as well, um, that if that's not able to get through Congress, if this derivatives level blows out, you know, where do we go from here? And, and it seems to me that both China has offered the, the uh, invited the United States to join the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and the Silk Road Fund. There's been other overtures around the BRICS initiatives to, to have the U.S. and the transatlantic community to join this, but there seems to be this stuck in geopolitics that we're the sole superpower, we don't want the multipolar world, we'll tell you what to do. And the entirety of that outlook is based on the confidence in this transatlantic system that's about to go poof. So I'm just wondering if you know of contingency plans for you know, maybe joining these nations instead of well, the United States, you, you may call us a multipolar, uh, unipolar power, but we certainly haven't been able to stop other countries from joining the Asian Infrastructure Bank. 
So obviously we're not in a position to dictate to our trade partners what alliances they join and don't join. Um, as for confidence in our system and where it is going, um, no doubt our system is capable, is equally capable of creating bubbles as other economic systems are of creating bubbles. Um, the question is, um, we still need to understand and see if places like Russia and China have the institutions that can respond to internal crises of their own. So I think the Western markets have, have been dismayed that the Chinese response to the collapsing stock market is to force, is to buy all these, uh, continue to buy stocks and to convince Chinese citizens to continue to invest in the stock market. That is basically um, only being held up by state funding. But, but, but I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not an expert in that and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not here to talk about the confidence in the U.S. system and its ability to survive a crash and how it, how it, how it develops. Um, in, in a highly unstable economic world that exists today, um, Russia, and I'll focus on Russia here, has chosen a unique philosophy which is highly isolationist and highly protective. Okay? Now, you may argue that in light of all the uncertainty, that is the best way to go. But I would contend that Russia tried that experiment for the better part of 70 years, and it did not work. And it left Russia more vulnerable at the end of the process and less prosperous. And I don't anticipate that a different result will occur if Putin continues to follow that path. I think it was related to Ukraine in the sense that Ukraine was no longer capturing the attention of the Russian population and that the continued reliance on the Ukraine issue in the media to rally the population, to increase support for Putin was no longer working and wasn't working as well. So when Putin started on a policy that required foreign policy successes because you couldn't deliver domestic economic success, unlike in the 2000s. Um, he, he, he raised the stakes for himself because he needs to keep, continue to feed the system, to feed the heroic narrative that he's created for himself, that sustains his possibility, and that has become the crucial narrative of the Russian media. And so when confronted with that, um, the fact that Ukraine no longer serves that purpose as well as it did in the past. Um, I think there is an argument that Putin needed to come up with something else. Um, and that's part of the reason. It's not the whole reason. But I think whoever were the five people in the room, I think that might have been, might have been raised um, as one of the reasons why Russia needed to find something else to maintain the system going. So I think it factored into his decision-making process. We, you know, until they open up the archive, and I'm sure that no one was smart enough even to write anything down at the meeting, so I'm not very confident that the archive will reveal um, what was decided. Um, I think 
that Ukraine did factor in. Um, but we're now left with a situation where Putin is forced to conduct two wars at the same time. One outside the Soviet space and one inside the post-Soviet space. Um, and that is simply a very tall order in good times and extremely difficult to do in, time, in times of a major, major economic recession where fundamental economic choices will have to be made in order to maintain this policy. With regard to Syria, um, I've been reading on the internet that a lot of Americans are supporting Putin and going into Syria and that the Russian people's His popularity is way up with the Russian people and increasing with Americans and Obama's popularity is decreasing. Will that factor into this? Um, the first public opinion poll that I saw said that 64% of the Russian people supported the incursion, the, the, the actions in Syria, which in fact is not a very high number. And this was done by the Levada Center, which is the premier polling group in, in Russia. So will this continue to fuel Russian popularity for P Putin is an open question, um, especially because it remains unclear um, how many boots on the ground Putin will ultimately put in Syria, uh, whether they will be engaged in combat, and to what extent they will suffer casualties. These are all open questions. Putin insists that they won't be sending significant levels of ground troops. But he's pretty much made a promise that he's going to change the facts on the ground. And he's going to rely on the Syrian army, which has been, the Assad army, which has been severely depleted and has been losing over the last six months. Uh, Hezbollah, which is a wild card, but we'll have to wait and see. And Russian aerial support. And that supposedly is going to change the facts on the ground. Um, we will have to wait and see whether that strategy produces results. Um, it is, you know, based on kind of general military doctrine, it's very hard to see how he gains the, the success on the ground if he doesn't put in more ground troops himself. Now, maybe the Syrian army can recover unexpectedly, and that is also a possibility as well. So, um, in terms of strong support in Russia, um, I don't, it, it's not as strong as initially I think people might have thought. And as we were discussing over lunch, this policy has significant unintended, unintended consequences. So we were talking about Turkey and Russia's relationship with Turkey. And Russia's had a, actually a very good relationship with Turkey up until about a week and a half ago. And unfortunately, Russia now has made two incursions into Turkish airspace. And President Erdogan said yesterday um, that, you know, uh, Turkey is one of the if not the, one of the major uh, purchasers of Russian energy. Uh, he'll go looking for it someplace else if this continues. Uh, and that the whole Turkish stream, which is supposed to be the pipeline that goes around Ukraine and still gains access to the European market, Turkey is the key launching point in that, uh, of, of that whole pipeline scheme. And there's no guarantee now that Turkey will agree to that, which again, how does Russia get these energy supplies to Europe, which ge generates the crucial hard currency earnings um, if it has, wants to avoid Ukraine. And Turkey all of a sudden no longer becomes available. So 
it, it, it is a policy that um, is, is, is fraught with danger in terms of Russia's allies that it has in the region, since Turkey was an ally in the region. And it's, 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 uh, it's one of those types of policies where uh, any small escalation could have dramatic unintended consequences. So I, don't ins I, I haven't seen a rallying of support in the United States for Putin um, for this action. Um, especially since he said he was going after the terrorists and the first thing he did was not go after the terrorists but go after the opposition, whoever constitutes that opposition in Syria. Just to turn the conversation back from stupid things Russia is doing to stupid things the Ukrainian government is doing, mm -hmm. uh, there, was, there was a move, uh, it was uh, probably late to the support of 2015, in which the Ukrainian government cut off um, the delivery of services and benefits to uh, the regions that are under separatist control. And from the perspective of, of state building, to bring in some sociology here, that seems like a very boneheaded thing to do. Because the major tasks of the Ukrainian government today are to uh, make government more effective in the parts of the country that it does control, and then to reassert control over the parts of the country that it lost, uh, which it hopefully still intends to do. Um, well, what's your assessment, and have you talked to people um, who, have, who have ideas about that particular move and whether uh, this will come back to, to haunt it in, in the long run, even though it might save some money in the short run, and was clearly in the short term also uh, a, a popular thing to do among the government's main constituency in the part of the country that controls. Well, my understanding of the policy was the decision was made to no longer pay services and salaries because they could no longer guarantee that it was actually going to go to the people it was intended to. That the banking system had collapsed in eastern Ukraine, that they could no longer make these payments through traditional methods of which they had always paid these, the, the, the people the services, um, and that therefore the Ukrainian government decided that it wasn't going to underwrite the separatists by sending this money to banks and banks in Ukraine that actual people involved. So Ukraine did try to create alternative sources that people could go to in order to gain access to their pensions and to salaries. Um, it meant traveling great distances. It was very difficult to do. Uh, but some Ukrainians were still able to get paid by going outside the occupied areas and trying to get access to, to the funds. Um, it, 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 is, it, it was a highly debated issue in, in Ukraine. Uh, there are plenty of people who did not agree with that decision, but the decision from the government's perspective was that it was no longer going to pay um, or send Ukraine's limited resources uh, to a region that it didn't control and couldn't guarantee the actual distribution of this money to the people it was intended to go to. Um, and that was the calculation that they made. What you said about the Russian economic problem reminds me to some degree, maybe to, to a great degree, of what Professor Ellis used to say about Russia back in the 1980s. I guess my question <coughs> is, how far are we from a collapse? <coughs> um, about $350 billion away, I think. Um, um, no, I mean, I think the state, to, the Russian state today is, is, on, is on much sounder ground, even with all the problems, than it was in the 19, early 1990s, late 80s, early 1990s, when you witnessed for the second time 
in the 20th century the absolute collapse of this Russian state. Um, I think we're less, we're, we're not there at that stage yet. Um, and the issue really is if we were to get to a similar state that we were in the 1990s, um, you know, Yeltsin was only able to keep the Russian Federation together by creating all these bilateral agreements. Agreements between Moscow and, and Tatarstan, Bashkortostan, Komi, all the places they had, it was held together by these bilateral agreements. Um, and I think if we were to reach a catastrophic collapse, if, um, would whoever succeeds him be able to reconnect these regions together? Putin's great success, and it was a significant success in the early 2000s, was to go after these agreements, which had created fundamental inequalities within the Russian Federation. So that you've, if you lived in one region, you paid X amount of taxes, and if you lived in another region, you know, it was a completely different rate. And none of these agreements were transparent, and, and it was very hard to understand how they related to each other. And it was a great source of conflict in terms of the economic running of the states. The regions put up barricades to transfers of goods, embargoes, and so forth. It, was, it lost all the benefits of being a national market. Putin, in one of his significant triumphs in the early 2000s, is that he got rid of the bilateral agreements, and he used the legal system to demand that the regions bring their laws into compliance with Russian federal law. Okay? And that was one of the turning points that helped lead to the recovery of Russia and its significant economic growth during the 2000s. Um, that was, so, so, and so I think what Putin has done is if indeed he continues to, to, to go down the road that he is, um, to put pressure on the country and its ability for the center to pay for all the regional services, do we again, then again face this asymmetric crisis in how the Russian Federation is held together and what would be the means by which they try to reconnect the Russian Federation if it indeed it were to have another catastrophic collapse. But we're, I don't think we're not there yet. But you know, the, the, the collapse of the Russian Empire in 1917 and the collapse of the Soviet Empire in 1991 all placed significant pressure on what unified this geographic space. And it is likely that a similar question would be raised in the aftermath of another catastrophic collapse of the Russian state. We have time for one more question. Um, perhaps could you comment on a couple other countries in the neighborhood, uh, Moldova and Belarus, and their, their degree to which they're stable? Um, Belarus is, is, is stable as long as it continues to receive the subsidies from Russia, uh, which have played an important role. Moldova is, I'm not a great expert on Moldova, but it's going through its own internal debates uh, in terms of, of, of trying to integrate more with the EU. It also has its own association agreement. Uh, it also has its own frozen conflict that makes things very difficult. 
Uh, and it also has a, a reformist government that is in a lot of trouble because it's lost billions of dollars and can't seem to find where it went. Um, so both countries, um, for, for Belarus, Belarus is very good at trying to play the West against, the, against Russia. Uh, it makes various soundings at various times that it wants to come become, you know, no longer be perceived as the last dictatorship in Europe, to be more engaged with the West and so forth. And yet, when the real crisis hits and it needs money, Russia usually shows up with enough money to keep Belarus in its orbit. So um, Moldova is is less in Russia's is significantly less in Russia's orbit, and um, but also faces the fundamental dilemma of to how does it move towards greater unity in Europe when it itself remains a, a very divided country. Okay, now for people who want to uh, continue the conversation, we're going to go into the next room. Uh, I encourage you to look at the flyers that are on the table for future Ellison Center events. Uh, but for now, please join me in thanking Bill Palmer for a great discussion.